If you have a Bible with you this morning, open it with me to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. And we're going to give our attention today to verses 27 through 33. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 33. While you're finding your place in a copy of God's Word, just uh, two quick reminders. Uh, first of all, you heard at the beginning of our service this morning in the announcement video, our Wednesday night dinners are kicking back off this Wednesday. And so I hope that you'll make plans to join us for our ministry activities on Wednesday. And of course, the Wednesday night dinners before that uh, makes it a little bit easier for you to be here with us. And if you plan on being here, fill out one of the blue dinner reservation cards that's on the pew back in front of you. And you can drop that card in the collection bins as you uh, leave this morning. Uh, but this is a great opportunity for us to come together in fellowship, uh, to spend time together around the table, to hear how God is at work in our lives, and just to encourage each other. Uh, in gospel conversation. So be here with us this Wednesday night as the Wednesday night dinners kick off. And then secondly, uh, we sent out a church email this past week. And if you're on our email list, you sh should have received it. Uh, but this next Sunday is going to be a special Sunday for us. We're going to honor and recognize our church secretary, Jennifer Lambert. Uh, she's celebrating five years with us here at Poplar Springs, and we're thankful, we're thankful for her service. Uh, but we're also going to help celebrate uh, the new arrival that she and her husband, Den, are going to be welcoming to their family in a few weeks. They are expecting uh, their third child, and we want to help celebrate that with them. And so we're asking next Sunday, in light of that, uh, if you would bring in uh, some diapers or baby wipes or gift cards to Target or Walmart, just a simple way uh, to show our appreciation and affection for Jennifer and all that she does for us here at our church family. And there'll be tables set up in the front lobby and the back lobby. If you bring those gifts in, you can leave them there. Uh, as you come in. And Jennifer will be in our second service with us next Sunday, and so we look forward uh, to celebrating with them on that day. All right, let's get into the Word this morning. Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 33. In our text today, we come to the climactic moment in the first half of Mark's gospel. In theatrical terms, this is the denouement. It's the moment where all of the plot lines converge. And for Mark, that means that in this moment, the identity of Jesus as God's Son is on full display. We're seeing His full deity and humanity. We're understanding His message and mission. And we come to this place through Peter's bold confession and confrontation with Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Christ. So if you have your Bibles open, follow along as I read and hear the Word of God today. Mark chapter 8, beginning with verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets, and he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, 
Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Would you pray with me once more? Our Heavenly Father, we give our thanks to you now for this, your holy word. Lord, I pray that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word today. Father, I pray that you would let us stand and preach in demonstration and power of your spirit. And Father, would you give us eyes today that we would see. God, give us ears today that we might hear. And Father, give us hearts that would be soft to receive what you say to us by your word. And Father, may we set our mind on the things of God today and not on the things of man. For we ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, as we look in these verses, and as we consider Jesus the Christ today, I want us to look at the text in two parts. This morning, first, we'll examine Jesus' questions, and then we'll conclude by looking at Jesus' quest. Jesus' question and Jesus' quest. And it's such an appropriate text for us this morning as we come to our study in Mark's gospel at this place and also as we prepare to come to the Lord's table together this morning. Because as we gather around the table in this sacred moment, we are professing with Peter that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God and salvation is found in his sacrifice alone. This morning, let's look in verses 27 through 30, and I want us to think about just a moment, Jesus' question. Jesus' question. Mark tells us in verse 27 that Jesus and his disciples are now traveling north. They're going about 25 miles north to the city of Caesarea Philippi. When we were last in Mark chapter 8, Jesus and his disciples were in the village of Bethsaida on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee, and he performed the miraculous healing Of a blind man. In that miracle, Jesus uh, operated in two stages, very unique. Uh, Jesus first touched the man's eyes, and he could only see dimly. He couldn't see things clearly. And then he touched them again, and the man's eyes were open, and he could see all things distinctly. Now, Jesus did this with a very intentional purpose. He used this miracle to prepare us for where we are today with Peter's confession. Just like the man who had been blind, the disciples too couldn't quite clearly see who Jesus was. But now through divine enablement and divine intervention, Peter comes to this place of great confession. And it happens as Jesus is going with them toward the city of Caesarea Philippi. This was an extremely pagan city in a Gentile region. It was built by Philip, who was one of Herod the Great's four sons, and he built it to honor Caesar Augustus. It was a a city that was filled with many temples and many idols. And it was on this way, on the journey, Mark tells us, that Jesus asked two questions of his disciples. First, in verse 27, Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am? At this point in his ministry, speculation regarding Jesus was was rampant. Everyone seemed to have an opinion about Jesus. What we discover is that Jesus simply cannot be ignored. And Jesus asked the question and the responses that he has given show that nearly all knew that there was something different and distinct about him. Jesus says, who do people say that I am? 
And the response, they say, well, some think you're John the Baptist. This was Herod Antipas thought. He was the one who had John the Baptist killed, and he believed that in Jesus, John the Baptist had been reincarnated. He had been resurrected, and he was out to get Herod. Some said that you are Elijah. This was a a common thought of those who knew the Old Testament because Elijah was simply taken up into heaven. And there were Old Testament readings and teachings that uh, in the days to come before the, uh, the eschatological end, Elijah would return once more. And then others simply thought that Jesus was a great teacher. He was one of the prophets, perhaps in the line of Moses and those that Moses said would come after him. Everyone had their opinion. Everyone had their thoughts. Now Jesus, in asking this question, isn't simply seeking to take a poll. He's not operating in the fashion of a politician trying to determine what his next move should be. Let me hear how people think of me and then I'll determine uh, how I should respond. That's not what Jesus is about here. He's not simply trying to harness the cultural winds that are blowing regarding his identity. But rather, Jesus asked this question because the answers that were given were all adequately incomplete. To say it more succinctly, they were all wrong. Jesus asked this question because he knew there was another question, a more important question to come. And then Jesus looks to his disciples Verse 29, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Jesus here wants to know what are their thoughts of him? Who do they think he is? In essence, Jesus is asking them, have you seen the truth? Have you come to understand who I am? And again, this is the aim of Mark's gospel. This is the Uh, the the, the purpose in which he has written to show us who Jesus is and every miracle that he has performed and every message that he has proclaimed, Jesus wants us to know that he is the Son of God. As Jesus asks the question, Peter gives the answer at the end of verse 29. Succinct and emphatic, Peter proclaims, you are the Christ. Matthew, in his account, gives the more detailed explanation. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter boldly professes the correct identity of Jesus. R.C. Sproul in his commentary on this particular passage writes, this is a glorious sentence. And he's absolutely correct. This is a glorious moment in the Gospel of Mark. This is the peak of the Gospel mountain that Mark has has been scaling. It's here in Mark chapter 8 and verse 29 in Peter's confession that the word Christ is used for only the second time in Mark's Gospel. The previous occurrence, it took place all the way back at the very beginning. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, where Mark opens the gospel with his declaration, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. And now here, Peter's come to confess Jesus as Christ. The word Christ is the Greek iteration of the Hebrew word Messiah, a word that simply means anointed one. 
In the Old Testament, it was a title that was used to speak of prophets, priests, and kings and their divinely appointed task. The terminology of Messiah was ultimately applied to the promised deliverer and ruler that would be sent by God to usher in the kingdom of God and an eternal rule. And now Peter has just boldly declared that Jesus is that promised one. He is God's divine son. He is the Christ who will rule and reign forever. As we think about Jesus' question this morning, a couple of thoughts I would share with you. First of all, we need to realize that this is a pivotal question. This is a pivotal question. All of Mark's gospel hinges upon this one question from the lips of Jesus. Who am I? The response to this question leads to an eternal destination. To say it another way, your response to this question brings eternity into the balance. An appropriate response, a correct answer, acknowledging and accepting Jesus as the Christ leads to an eternity in heaven. An inappropriate response, an incorrect answer leads to an eternity in hell. Jesus seems to understand this, and again in Matthew's rendering of this account where more detail is supplied, after Peter makes his confession, Jesus blesses him. He says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father who is in heaven. And he says, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus understood what was at stake and how that question was answered. As Jesus replied to Peter, he uses a play on words there. Peter's name means rock, but it, it pictures a little rock, a small rock, a pebble, if you will. But when Jesus says, I will build my church upon this rock, Jesus uses a, a word that speaks of a large rock, of a, of a great boulder. And so what Jesus is saying is that I'm not going to build the church upon Peter. Peter is not that rock, although Peter plays an important part in the church. Rather, Jesus is saying, I am building the church upon the bedrock confession of my identity as the Christ, the Son of God, the promised one, the sent one, the anointed one, the ultimate fulfillment of the office of prophet, priest, and king. All who will know me and acknowledge me as such, they're part of my family. They are the church of Jesus Christ, and the gates of hell will not prevail against them. Oh, we can't miss the weightiness of what's taking place here in this moment. This is no small question that Jesus is asking. It's a pivotal question. But it's also a very personal question. It's a very personal question. When Jesus asked in verse 29 of his disciples, he makes it personal. He's not concerned with the opinions of others. He's not concerned with his placement within the world. He wants to know who do they say that he is? Who do you say that I am? I want you to know this morning that this is a question that applies to you today as well. You cannot escape the question of who Jesus is. He can't be ignored. 
and you can't ignore him. I wonder today, do you confess that Jesus is Christ? Do you confess today that he is God's son who is sent in the world, into the world and that faith in him alone is the only thing that can save you from your sin? I wonder, have you seen the truth of who Jesus is? Not that you have some lofty conception of Jesus. Not even that you have some understanding of Jesus. All the people had that. They all in some way attributed to Jesus some some elevated status. He's a good man. He's a great teacher. He might even be supernatural in some aspects. But they didn't fully know him as the Christ as the divine one, the God-man, who was sent into the world to save sinners. I wonder, do you know him that way today? Jesus is asking that question of you. Who do you say that I am? And it's a pivotal question, for your eternal destiny hangs in the balance. As we hear Peter's confession today, we consider Jesus' question. It's one that you must also consider. It's a confession that you also must make. But there's a second part to our text. We move now from Jesus' question to Jesus' quest. At the end of the first part in verse 30, after the bold confession of Peter, Jesus once again employs the messianic secret. We've seen this previously several times in our study of Mark's gospel where Jesus heals someone or There's a confession regarding the identity of Jesus, sometimes even from demons. And Jesus calls them to silence. Say nothing about this to anyone. And that's so contrary to us because we believe telling everyone about Jesus is what we need to do. But again, Jesus employs this approach because he wants to make sure they have the proper understanding of him as the Christ. That they see him in the correct fashion. That they're not simply peddling a Jesus of their own making. They're not creating a Christ of their imagination. And Jesus understands that even in this climactic moment, there's still some shaping of their understanding that needs to transpire. So he tells them, don't say say anything about this to anyone. And then in verse 31, Jesus began to teach them, Mark says, that the Son of Man, one of the most applied titles that Jesus uses in his gospel ministry. He picks it up from the Old Testament that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. In this moment, there's a shift that takes place in Mark's gospel. For the first eight chapters, Mark's focus has has been upon who Jesus is. He is the Christ. He is God's Son. He is the Messiah. Over and over and over again, Mark has brought that to the forefront. But now there's a shift that's going to take place. Mark is now going to begin to emphasize not who Jesus is, but what Jesus will do. Now in his gospel, he's going to tell us what kind of Christ He is. And we can't miss this. We can't have a misconception regarding Christ. 
And Jesus here understands that as well because in verse 31, Mark tells us that he began to teach them. What Jesus is telling them here in this portion of the text is not something that he just says one time, says one time and then moves on. No, he's going to reiterate this to them over and over and over and over again. In fact, three times within the next three chapters, what we hear Jesus say in these verses, he will return to. And what he comes back to is the reality that is awaiting him, that a cross is in the future for Christ, that he is a suffering Savior. And within Jewish culture and even within the mind of Peter, as we'll see in just a moment, this was a foreign concept. This was a foreign thought. They understood the idea of a Messiah. They understood the concept of Christ. But they couldn't fathom, they had missed that Christ would suffer. uh, That the Messiah would be murdered. That was foreign to them in every way, form, and fashion. And so Jesus is emphatically telling them, this is going to happen. He speaks of it in this way. It is a divine necessity. Jesus says the Son of Man must. There's no escaping it. There's no avoiding it. A divine appointment has been made. This was the purpose and the reason for which the Christ was sent. He says there's four things that are going to occur. He's going to suffer many things. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be killed. And he's going to be raised. And Jesus expresses this to them in his simplest and plainest way possible. In verse 32, Mark says he said this plainly. There's no teaching in parables. There's no flowery language, no hidden messages. Jesus is just laying it out there bare bones. I'm going to die. I'm going to lay my life down. I'm going to suffer and be raised. As Jesus is elaborating on this divine necessity, Peter is taken aback. In verse 32, after Jesus expresses what is to come for him as the Christ, Mark tells us Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh, Peter. I mean, in one moment, he's got it all right. In one moment, he's making this bold confession, and now here we are just a few verses later, and he's got it all backwards again. I feel like Peter a lot of days. Man, there's some days you feel like you got it all right. Man, I've got this. We're going to do this. I'm in step. And then sometimes before that day is even over with, it's like, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? There's great hope in this for us because we're all like Peter. Peter took Jesus aside and he rebuked him. It's never a good idea to rebuke Jesus. But it wasn't just Peter. And we know that the struggle that Peter was having wasn't just his alone because in verse 33, Jesus turns and looks at all of his disciples, and he rebukes Peter. And the word that Mark uses there to describe the response of Jesus to to Peter, the rebuke, is the same word that he uses when Jesus rebukes demons. When Jesus speaks against demons, as he's exercised them and rebuking them for their practices, that's now what he is doing to Peter. It's a scathing remark. 
And he looks at him in verse 33 and he says, Get behind me, Satan. I imagine Peter stopped in his tracks and all the rest did as well. In that moment, Jesus had just attributed the thought and the attitude and the mindset of Peter to the operation of Satan. This is scandalous. This is scathing. Serious. What's going on? Well, you see, Peter couldn't fathom a Christ who would suffer. He couldn't comprehend that Christ would have to go to a cross. And so, in essence, what Peter is saying is that, Jesus, there'll be no suffering for you. There'll be no rejection for you. There'll be no murder for you. And as a result, there'll be no resurrection for you. Peter says, you're not that kind of Christ. And Jesus says, Peter, you've got it all wrong. You see, in that moment, Peter was wanting to form Christ into his own mold. He was wanting to create a savior of his own making. He was wanting a savior who avoided all suffering. But that's not the type of savior that God has sent us. Peter was saying, there's no cross in your future. And Jesus says, Peter, that mentality is the mind of Satan. When you go back to Mark chapter 1, toward the end of that opening chapter, Jesus is baptized and then he's led into the wilderness by the Spirit where he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And at the end of that time, you remember Satan comes against him and he seeks to tempt him in in three unique ways. And in essence, what Satan is doing is offering to Jesus the things of this world if he will avoid the cross. If you'll just miss the cross, if you'll just go past the cross, if you'll neglect the cross, if you'll avoid the cross, I'll give all of this to you. And now we have Peter doing the same thing. At the end of the temptation in the wilderness, the Bible tells us through the other gospel writers that Satan left him for an opportune time. Satan departed from Jesus, but he wasn't done with Jesus. He was still looking for every occasion and opportunity to keep Jesus from going to the cross. Because at the cross, as we sang this morning, it was finished. It was done. Salvation was accomplished. Victory was secured. And without the cross, apart from the cross, Satan would still regain control and be triumphant. So in All that he could do, in every effort that he could muster, he was seeking to keep Jesus from the cross. And now, now in this opportune time, he is working through one of Christ's own apostles. The mindset, the thought, the attitude. There's no cross needed for you. And Jesus says, that's the thought of Satan, Peter. We need to remember this morning that God has not come to deliver us from suffering, but rather to save us through suffering. By going to the cross, Jesus Christ secures our salvation. And he lets Peter know real quick that your mind right now is not set on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus, in his quest to the cross, calls us to adopt a divine mentality. 
And that divine mentality means that we keep the gospel as a main priority. Jesus came and did a lot of things. A lot of good. He healed a lot of people. He came and He restored a lot that was broken. But Jesus here is reminding us that the main purpose of His coming as the Christ was was to go to the cross to deal with our sin. Your greatest need and my greatest need is a Savior. And that salvation comes only through a sacrifice that is given. And that's what Jesus does for us at the cross. As we continue through our study in the Gospel of Mark in the Sundays still to come, we'll journey with Jesus to the cross. In Luke's account, in Luke chapter 9, where this same turn begins to take place in the ministry of Jesus, Luke tells us that he sets his face like flint towards Jerusalem. He's a man with great resolve. A man with great determination, knowing what awaits him, he is unflinching in what he will face. He's a man on a quest to deal with our sin and to become our sacrifice. As we think about Jesus, let us think of him in the appropriate way. Let us remind ourselves that he came not to make us happy, but to make us holy. He came as the Christ who would go to a cross. Let's pray.